we're not really providing a service of how, here's how you can solve your third party problem faster. So we're actually trying to understand a, a, an industry problem and building that kind of data set, that exchange is really starting to take off. One of the cool things about it is um, every company that's in the exchange benefits from every new entrant. Today on the TechNado, we'll be talking with Fred Knight of CyberGRX about risk assessment. We've also got some news about the right to repair legislation coming up in Canada, as well as the real story about the Momo Challenge on YouTube. That's all coming up on TechNado, starting right now. And welcome to the TechNado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Mr. Don Pizzette. And today, we've got the old uh, Gingerbeard gang back together. Justin Dennison's <laughs> joining us. Justin, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Now that I'm not surrounded by red, my, my beard is still red, but it doesn't fluoresce like it would as a as a lighthouse or something like that. Yeah, you're making a bold choice in wearing a reddish shirt. I, so I won't I, do it. I didn't get to pick this shirt. I got this shirt for free, okay. and you, you can't be picky. You, don't have to wear it. Uh, not, not that but, you don't look wait, great. But it's so comfortable. So this is like Harry Potter. The, the shirt picked you. Yeah, it did. Uh, it did. It you did. want to do the, the choosing shirt? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, you got red. Well, right, well I guess I'll, I'll do it. And uh, it looked into your soul uh, and it found red. Uh, or it didn't pan. because we're gingers and have no souls. Yep, there it is. Yeah, it's a, right. it's a myth. Well. <laughs> All right, well, we've got a lot of news today, and we've also got uh, a great interview as well um, with CyberGRX. Uh, that's coming up a little bit later. We're going to talk about risk assessment, which I thought was super boring, but I think it's going to be really exciting, actually, now that uh, we've recorded that ahead of time. <laughs> I was excited. I was like, si risk are assessment. You, I feel Prognosticating. Like, you're, you're like revealing TV magic. Or well, just, oh, I think the people, know, you're going to vanish. <laughs> but I am tricky like okay, that. Okay, that's true. Yeah. yeah. No yeah. soul. I'm, I'm like David Copperfield. Well, let's get to our first news article, which, of course, is uh, the Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga performance from the Oscar. No, I'm sorry. No. That's a mistake. That's what I wanted to talk about. Uh, this one is actually from Motherboard. Uh, it is a right to repair legislation that's being officially considered in Canada. So um, this is basically where devices can or device manufacturers can say, "No, you're voiding the warranty if you if you crack this open," and legislation would make it so you don't void the warranty. Yeah. So you know, there's a couple of takes on this one. Uh, a lot of people have been critical of Apple that they keep making the devices smaller and harder to repair uh, and getting to the point where they were actually enforcing for a while that if you fixed your own phone, if you broke it and you fixed it yourself, it would void your warranty. Mm -hmm. And so then they, they wouldn't like replace your battery when the battery died uh, because they said, oh, you, you tampered with the phone. Anytime you bought a computer, it used to have a sticker on the back that would say, you know, like if you removed the case, a warranty void if removed. But there were plenty of times where you'd need to open the case, like add another hard drive and they would void your warranty for that. And so it was It was passed here in the U.S. years ago that those little uh, warranty void if removed stickers, don't, they don't have any legal standing. Uh, but the actual right to repair something, if I, if I have an iPhone and I break the screen and I replace it with a third-party screen, right, I can't expect Apple to fix my third-party screen. But if the battery goes bad, I can still expect them to replace the battery. And Apple and other companies like that were refusing and saying, nope, nope, this isn't the original screen. We're not changing your battery. And so finally, they they basically had to pass a ruling. I think it was the, um, here in the U.S., it's the F. 
FTC, the Federal Trade, Trade Commission, Commission that does it. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they made a ruling and just said, no, you're allowed to fix stuff. You guys need to just deal with it. Uh, but that's in the U.S. Other countries are going through the same thing, and Canada is getting to see that right now. So uh, they have right to repair legislation. It is actually being considered, has not been passed yet, so it may get rejected. But, uh, you know, this is one of those things where not allowing you to repair a device specifically benefits the corporations, not the people. John Deere, the tractor, I mean, we're going to get a little off from our high-tech stuff, uh, but they've done the same thing where now they will not allow you to use third-party parts in their tractors, uh, and they have software that makes, you know, like the the BIOS or whatever mm -hmm. for the tractors, and, and they won't give you the access to that software. So if you replace a part, it just won't work, and then the whole device is dead unless you use official John Deere parts. So that's the world that's kind of getting created, and the government's having to step in to break that up. Uh, how does this affect some of those like third-party repair shops? Uh, does, does that affect any of the? I mean, whether it be in the United States or in Canada, does because I know I've called them and they're like, "Yeah, we'll repair it." Does that have any bearing on that? You know, they don't really care because it's it's you, the consumer, that gets affected. So if you went down there, I'm sure they'd fix your phone. And I, I've had I've had a screen replaced. Uh, I had a Samsung Galaxy S8 that needed a screen replacement, and I took it down to a place in the local mall, and they they repaired, did a great job. It looks wonderful, but it's not an actual Samsung paint a glass on the front anymore so you know they don't care but if your warranty is is still active you know you'd be losing that warranty well not not in the u.s anymore but uh in other countries you would now if your warranty's already up then none of this really matters anyway and most people get a cell phone and use it for like two years uh your warranty is only one year if even uh so you're usually better off doing things like insurance but i, I found I, I don't know if you guys ever use the cell phone insurance but Usually the deductible on it's high enough that you might as well just pay for the repair. Yeah, yeah, for the most time. I mean, there was one time I got a repair quote, and I was like, that seemed high. <laughs> uh, it was actually a battery replacement. It was a phone that was you know, out of uh, the one-year warranty. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, no, that seems like a little high. So I searched around the Internet, got the little tool and an extra battery for like 30 bucks, and they're like, but it's going to take you an hour. I yeah. was finished in like seven minutes. Now, this was, this was a while ago. This isn't with newer phones that have very seamless cases or wraparound screens or anything. Yeah, no, the uh, the angle they're getting us on now, though, so companies like Apple have had to back off of that, but now they're doing where uh, there's no upgradable parts, right, where the battery is soldered onto the board or, or, you know, on laptops. There's a lot of laptops that come now with, with no expandable memory, and the hard drive is is uh, flash memory, and so it'll be soldered onto the motherboard. So you kind of, like, like, lost that right to upgrade. And, uh, you know, if you have a hard drive fail and it's mounted on the motherboard, now you've got to replace the motherboard. So even though you're allowed to repair it, it might be cost prohibitive. And it it benefits these manufacturers to do it because then you're just going to buy a new device, which is when they make money. They don't make money when you repair your own device. So if you're, uh, you know, if you get poutine in your uh, in the speaker <laughs> port uh, on your on your iPhone, or if you're having some, uh, you know, some mayonnaise drips off the fry into the charging, uh, if uh, thing, you're all set. You're you're a monster. For saying mayonnaise drips off the fry, but it's, if I had a nickel Canada, for every time that uh, poutine dropped into my speaker, yeah, be, uh, <laughs> fifteen cents at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At well, minimum. they they make the beaver pelt keyboard covers, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And now we're tiptoeing into the the territory of, oh uh, yeah, we got to stop. Yeah. <laughs> is this race is, is Canadian a race? I don't. Uh, all right. all, it's a condition. All, all, it's a, <laughs> I think that's worse. Uh. All right. Uh, we, oh, we just lost all of our Canadian uh, 
listeners and, uh, <laughs> and our guests. So, uh, all right, let's get to our next article. Uh, the Galaxy S10 uh, has an ultrasonic fingerprint scanner, and here's why you should care. Uh, this is from CNET. And so, yeah, uh, the question they ask here is, what's an ultrasonic fingerprint scanner? And why is it good, Don? All right. So uh, last week, huge cell phone announcements came out from several manufacturers, and Samsung was one of them announcing the Galaxy S10. The uh, uh, Galaxy F, right, their foldable phone, that got all the press. I did, did we talk about that we on did. the podcast? Okay, yeah. so we talked about that one. Uh, we totally didn't talk about the Galaxy S10 because who cares, right? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but it has an ultrasonic fingerprint reader, which when Apple released the iPhone X, they eliminated the fingerprint reader on it, and the rumor was they were working on a through-the-screen fingerprint reader. Couldn't get it done in time, and so instead we, we ended up with crappy face ID, which is horrible. Well, Samsung kept the fingerprint reader on the back of their phone. So on the, you know, the back of most Android phones, you'll find a fingerprint reader. It might be a circle. It might be a square, but it, it's there. Uh, Samsung finally, or has apparently, uh, finally perfected the technology of having a fingerprint screen re- reader right under the screen, and it does it with ultrasonic waves. So the same technology they use uh, to you know look at babies in the womb, they do the same thing with your thumb now. Hopefully your thumb's not impregnated, but you, you put your thumb on the phone screen, and it's able to use ultrasonic, uh, I want to say radiation, but that's not right, but it's ultrasonic waves. I hope not. To, Technic- technically it's a radiation. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's All sound right. radiant, right? It radiates out from a, from a source. So uh, I'm allowed to I mean, it. it's not electromagnetic, but um, yeah, it vibrates and... and uh, I wonder, could they figure out if you had a blood clot in your thumb? Because that's how they determine if you have a blood clot. I don't know. But I do know that it's better than a regular fingerprint reader because it's doing a three-dimensional reading of the fingerprint. A regular fingerprint reader is really taking a picture, and so it gets a two-dimensional diagram, and then it identifies points on there. With this, it's three-dimensional, so you can actually see the depth of the ridges and, and other things, and that makes it far more effective. And honestly, it could be twice as bad as fingerprints, and it would still be 100 times better than Face ID. So I, I'm curious to see if Apple starts to adopt this, but Samsung's got it, and we'll hopefully see more and more phones have it. As someone with a, a, apparently a working face, I've had no problems <laughs> um, with Face ID, be it at night, I'm wearing a hat, you know, I've got a burka on. I've always been fine. reflective. Oh, because of the no soul. Yeah, no, just because you're really pasty. Oh, because I'm very pale. Okay. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> I, I could say that. No, I know mine you is can. as well. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. I get it. I get it. That's you know, fair. I, I never had to buy reflectors. Versus for my bronze complexion. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, next to us, Don, <laughs> you, are you look yeah. like you are a Greek guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that chin, you know, yeah, the, the yeah. jawline. Um, so <laughs> I, I just love the the uh, third party apps that this could open up with. You know, you can do your own ultrasound at home. <laughs> you uh, just rub the phone. <laughs> yeah, run the, rub the phone on the on the. On It'll the tummy be there. worth all the other electromagnetic radiation, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're playing Bach through ultrasound. It's weird. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what are the things you could do? Like, <laughs> I, I guess technically, if they had a large enough range, they could scan a room. They could determine profiles of the room uh, through like I'm sure they are. Suppose that's true. It would be hard. I, I don't think they could make a, a strong enough uh, I would emitter sus- to fit in a phone. I, I would suspect not as well. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we yeah. didn't used to think computers would fit in there. Uh, that's true. Could we're be getting, getting coming deep. down the line. Yeah, yeah, one. yeah. Wow, what's the future? The future <laughs> is now. Speaking of the future, uh, we've got the HoloLens 2. 
coming out from Microsoft. They've just announced it. It's on Tom's hardware. Uh, for $3,500, we have the HoloLens 2 because... I mean, we all had a HoloLens one, right? Absolutely. I bought two. Two of them? Yeah, I had one for each eye. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, apparently that worked so well uh, <laughs> that now we're going with the HoloLens 2, which uh, they're, are they're saying better. it's a vast improvement um, over the thing I didn't even use the first time. Uh, Don, do you know what's new in this one? Yeah, so the you know, keep in mind that the HoloLens one was, I'm going to do air quotes here, released last year. Uh, it wasn't really released. It was the dev kit that was mm -hmm. released. And anybody could buy one, you know, and I think they were, I think they were $1,500. I feel like they were cheaper uh, or less expensive. Them away. Yeah. But it was designed for developers to buy them so they could then start to create apps that would work with the HoloLens. Microsoft did that big demo of the Minecraft gaming table where it was all popped out of the table and it was all extremely scripted for that presentation. Uh, in the last year, literally next to nothing has come out for the HoloLens, but they've continued to evolve it on their side. Microsoft has really big plans for this, and they found certain things about the design of the original HoloLens that uh, could be made more powerful or just could be done better now. Uh, and so they've released a new one. And again, it is still targeted as really a development kit. So if you're a developer looking to create augmented reality applications, you can pick up a HoloLens kit for $3,500 and then use that to start developing. Now, uh, that means this is not really targeted to consumers. Uh, Microsoft's actually been picking up a little bit of bad press because they've been working on this for military purposes. Uh, one of the examples they gave was you could have somebody inside a tank, and even the most advanced tanks still have little windows on them so that people can see outside. Well, now they could put cameras around the tank. The driver could be sitting inside completely enclosed and look around and, and see right through the walls, right, uh, and, uh, you know, kill more enemies, which some of the Microsoft employees have been pro protesting about. Or see the people not to shoot that they didn't notice there, before. There we go, right? And All the people that get run over by tanks inadvertently, that's gone. Glass half full right there. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. a silver lining kind of guy. Um, and, and I do make fun uh, of the HoloLens, <laughs> but it is it is a cool technology, and, and the demos I've seen are pretty cool. And, and for those that aren't really familiar, it's... it's uh, you know, it, as Don said, it's a clear uh, screen on the front, so you're not just in a virtual reality, you know, immersive experience. You're able to augment reality and put things on, uh, you know, see tutorials on top of the thing you're working on or, or all kinds of different things. It looks pretty cool. Well, what's the long-term, I don't know, whenever I see devices that are meant to, like, change your field of vision like that, what's the long-term health? Are there any considerations for long-term you know, health um, I remember issues? when the uh, the Nintendo 3DS came out, right? It, and it did 3D... Without uh, glasses. Like, without yeah. glasses, right? And they said if you were under eight years old, you weren't you weren't supposed to use it. That it could mess with your eye development because you're technically like focusing through the, the lens. Uh, they haven't really said anything about the HoloLens on this. And it's augmented reality, so you're still looking through and focusing like you normally would. So it may have no effect whatsoever. It may actually just work. Uh, you know, I, I kind of dodged your question, Peter, about what's new in the HoloLens 2, and that's because if you read this entire article, there's Microsoft's take and then there's Tom's hardware. So Microsoft's take on what's new is that this one, it's got more immersion, better comfort, and more value out of the box. Oh, it's got more value. Uh, which, which means absolutely nothing. Uh, Tom's hardware highlights the fact that it has a flip-up lens now, so when you're not using it, you can flip it up and just look silly. That's more uh, value. And then flip it down. But other than that, there's really not much in here uh, indicating what's new other than the appearance. Well, better comfort. Better comfort, sure. An additional <laughs> immersion. So, but that's a comparative word. It's better comfort than the HoloLens 1. 
or is it comfortable? No, then an Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say an Iron Maiden. Right? Yeah, same I was trying to think what else would wrap around my head. <laughs> You're like, well, it doesn't cause the searing headaches in my eyes anymore. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I haven't actually used a hollow lens too, so, so less bleeding. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, you're covered there. <laughs> All right, well, let's stick on uh, Tom's hardware here for our next article. Forget USB 3.0 and USB 3.1, which, done. I've forgotten. <laughs> Already it. forgotten. U- US, yeah, what are we talking about? USB 3.2 is moving forward. So, yeah, it's just All naming right. stuff? What is so going on it, here? It's somewhat frustrating, right? Because the world is supposed to be moving to USB-C, and everything's supposed to be nice and consistent, and it's just one port now, right? But they've totally screwed up USB-C because sometimes you have a USB 3.0 or 3.1. Sometimes it's Thunderbolt. Sometimes it's got the display link. You know, there's just so many variations of USB-C right now. So what they're doing is they're moving forward with USB 3.2, and they're trying to roll all that stuff together. So there's a consistent implementation of this is USB 3.2. So in previous years, they had where, uh, you know, you have multiple levels of compatibility. This time, they're trying to roll it all together to collapse it into one. This is a hardware change, so this is not going to happen tomorrow or next month or even over the next year. Oh, But probably towards the end of 2019, we'll start seeing devices come up with USB 3.2 ports and eliminating all the previous versions, so you won't see 3.0 and 3.1 anymore. Uh, it is somewhat frustrating, but there is some benefit to it. One big thing is the increased speed. So with USB 3.1... Uh, they have the marketing term of super speed USB 10 gigabit. Ooh. And with 3.2, it's going to double to 20 gigabit uh, to make it a little more competitive with Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt can still do more, uh, so it's a faster technology. But uh, with USB 3.2, they've kind of narrowed that gap a bit. And so that is all going to be coming later on in this year. One USB to rule them all. All right. Well, Looking technically, you'd still be compatible with USB 2 and 1.1 and... Sure. <laughs> but what about USB-C? Could I put a USB-C in it? <laughs> no, I'm, likely, I'm, yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> They're like, all right, so wait a minute. I have a, this is USB-2, USB-C. I need a three to two connector. I, well, I'm, I'm being facetious, but. But, you know, all joking aside, it still doesn't solve the problem with Thunderbolt. Yeah. Because you, you might have a USB-C port that's USB 3.2, but not Thunderbolt. And so you end up with some devices that won't plug into it. Uh, yeah. That sounds fun. If it's you glorious. push hard enough, <laughs> anything's possible. Uh, all right, let's now move over to Slashdot over on tech.slashdot.org. A new study uh, from the Department of Obvious uh, shows <laughs> Windows 10 Home Edition users are baffled by updates. Um, up, the updates are that little thing that you have to hit dismiss on all the time, right? Yeah. Yep. So um, ignore. This one, uh, I think, Justin, you said it best. Like, it, does this even need to be a news article? Like, <laughs> it, I, I don't think so. You just walk at a computer lab, just hang out for a while, and you hear someone go, what is going on? I, I've, in class teaching with computers, I've seen it so many times. I go, well, what's going on? Why aren't you typing? You know, what's going on? Uh, yeah, so my computer's doing updates. I don't really know why. It just said shutting down now and applying updates. You know, even the good users, right? If you find like the ideal home user, somebody who absolutely does their updates religiously, maybe they even do it manually every night, they do the updates. If you ask that person, okay, what what did the update you just did? What what did it do? What did it fix? They don't know. Just, hey, I, I saw some update was available. I installed it. So good for them. They at least applied it. But Microsoft does not do the greatest job of communicating out what the updates do. At least 
not to non-professionals. If, if you're a professional, you know, you can go to the TechNet site, you can pull up the knowledge base article, it tells you exactly what's changed, you get an idea uh, in an enterprise environment, you would then test that update, make sure it worked appropriately, and then roll it out to all of your clients using WSUS or System Center Configuration Manager or some other utility like that, right? That, that's how it works in an enterprise space. For a home user, though, they're not going to do all that. That's stupid. <laughs> and, and, you know, not only do you have your operating system updates, you have all your application updates. They're just going to click to either do it or not do it. Uh, but the part that made me laugh kind of the most reading through this was where they gave the sample size. This is based on a survey of 93 Windows 10 home users. I, when I read that the first time, I was like, it's supposed to be 93,000 or, or something. The, the sample size here is 93. 93 people. So but, this, this seems like a pervasive like practice <laughs> with studies. I, I've seen this many times. Sample size of 13 people. Yeah. I'm like, that's not a sample size. That's an office poll. I that's asked my real. mom, yeah. and she didn't know. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, we just asked all of our parents, or I was at a family gathering. It's like, hey, Windows updates. No yeah. one? Cool. Yeah, here, so, nay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, four to five dentists also agreed uh, that it was difficult. So the question is, why, why are we talking about this then? Okay. All we've done is make fun of this story. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the reason we're talking about it is that Microsoft just announced last week that they are changing the naming of their update structure so at least people will understand what update is about to come down the line. Uh, they have gotten a little bit better with their build numbers and things so that we know the year and the month. Uh, but they still haven't done a great job of identifying what these updates happen to be. Uh, so thing is that you actually can learn a lot about the updates that are applying in your computer. Uh, in Windows 10, if you go into your uh, Windows Features screen uh, inside of Settings, you can pull up a list of the updates that are applied, and you can click on them, and they link to the article. So you can learn more about them if you want, but this is a area where we're, we're hopefully going to see some improvement, some more transparency in, as far as what these updates are. You know where they do a good job with this stuff is in the App Store. Like if you go into the iOS app store or the Android app store, whenever somebody pushes an update, they always just do a little blurb in there and say, this is what we just fixed. We need to start seeing some, you know, things like that inside of Windows. But, uh, I don't know if the iOS app store requires that, but I mean, I see that for a change log and anything that I'm using. Mm -hmm. Change logs published, but you do see that if you, I set up automatic updates, so I don't have to worry about it. But if you're physically updating a particular app, it says in this version, we have fixed this bug that does this. We have added this feature. Um, is there anywhere that you could, if you were so inclined, to go find that about respective Windows updates? Like, is there an easily searchable one? Well, there's the TechNet site, right? So technet.microsoft.com, that's where they keep track of all of that information. But you threw the word easily in there, so ah. that kind of ruins it. Uh, but, yeah, that, that's where I would go. Okay. Yeah. Project says, made updates to Windows. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Wait, wait, I'm not there. I'm not programming anymore. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's get to our last story before our interview. And this is a kind of weird one. Um, you know, it's kind of our, our wacky story of the week, but it's, it's not really a funny one per se in, in, until we get to it that kind of the second <laughs> half of it. But, uh, so this one's over on uh, metro.co.uk. Uh, Girl 6 describes Momo could be in your dreams or she could kill you. Uh, so there's this Momo challenge thing going around. I actually heard about it from my daughter, too, uh, where they were talking about it at school, where uh, uh, allegedly uh, during... Uh, these YouTube kids' videos or even uh, on regular YouTube, there's seemingly harmless children's videos that then in the middle there's a, uh, a threat uh, or someone teaching you how to uh, commit suicide or, or harm others or things like that. And, uh, and it's been getting buzz. I mean, you've got uh, Kim Kardashian's tweeting about it uh, to all her followers. Every uh, parent is talking about it. Um, but 
it it might not be true. That's what what you said when you looked this up here. Yeah, it, um, you know, the 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 one that you gave an example of the the suicide story, uh, yeah. the that was detected by a um, it was a I believe it was a doctor of some sort, and their child saw the video and and they happened to see it. They reported it to YouTube. YouTube took it down, and that was inside of YouTube Kids. So you know, it's supposed to be curated content. Okay, so that was real. And well, as far as we saying. know, okay. since it was taken down, it's hard for people to verify whether or not that actually existed. So now this Momo thing comes out, and there appears to be literally no evidence on this. In fact, we have that next article right here, which is Momo is not trying to kill your children. Yeah, <laughs> good, but good look to know. At that thing, that thing uh, is creepy. For those of you just so, listening, this is a. It looks like a Tim Burton character. Uh, yeah, right? you know Beetlejuice. What it looks like? Yeah, Beetlejuice. I was getting ready to say <laughs> it looks like Gina Davis when she yeah, like she, jacks up her face. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, she like hinge her jaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So they're, they're saying now it still could potentially be true, but nobody's been able to find this content that people are are warning about. And this is one of those things where. Uh, well, maybe it is a hoax, but what if it isn't and you don't address it like at school or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever it may be? Because this came up uh, in the office, and you know, my mom asked me about it. And I was like, I, I haven't seen anything like that. I went searching for it. I was like, I want to see it. Um, I was not able to see it, and it appears that a lot of this is like, I heard it from a friend who mm-hmm. heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who. You've it's, been messing around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like the uh, it's like the modern version of chain letters, yeah. right? I think we're we're old enough to yeah. to mm-hmm. remember chain letters. Yeah. You get it in the mail, it would say you need to forward this to ten friends, or bad things will happen to you, right? Yeah. Uh, which was all just BS. You throw it in the trash, but people would forward them along. Well, now you have this: like somebody makes up the Momo challenge, and I warn you two, and then you warn other people, and. And then someone will go out and make videos that actually, well, and, you know, fulfill the prophecy. And sooner or later, somebody with some credibility retweets it, yeah. right? Like in this case, it was uh, Kim Kardashian. Yeah, someone with credibility. Who, yeah, absolutely. Who is the, you know, the, the measuring stick of our day and age. I am really uh, confused right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am taking aback. All right, so, so just to clarify, because my question then was, well, what the heck is this picture that I'm looking at then? Uh, Momo is uh, is a sculpture created by an artist whose name I won't uh, destroy uh, from Japan uh, from a special effects company uh, called Link Factory. So um, it, uh, the artwork is called Mother Bird. So it's an old thing from 2016. So that's what the image is. Okay. So, Good to know. Uh, someone saw this and said, yeah, that's the kind of thing that would – Scared the crap out of children. And my daughter did sleep in my bed last night because of that picture. Well, that picture is creepy. It is. But I, I went and tried to find it, and it appears that this has come up a, a little bit probably about mid last year. Like someone was like, oh, that's the Momo thing or whatever it may mm-hmm. be. This caused me to commit suicide, or someone said that. And, but again, it, I never could find someone, right? There was a six year old in the first article that was describing her experience, mm-hmm. but. Which Don is saying is a liar now. Uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Kids are impressionable. I've ne- I couldn't find anybody who's like, yeah, I saw it. Now that doesn't mean that it yeah. doesn't exist, right? But eh. so apparently, this is a new category we have called the viral hoax, mm-hmm. and so you know, it's it's a hoax, but it it goes out. And when you know, we used to be able to rely on sites like Snopes, Snopes.com, they would report on whether something was true or not. But that was back in the days when this just propagated by email. But thanks to social media, it propagates way faster. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't even think to check Snopes. It is on they, Snopes. It is, yeah. And uh, uh, they also were like, we could not find any yeah. like, firsthand. But but I will say, regardless of the fact of whether or not this was a hoax, 
people will make videos yes, now. Absolutely. And so you're, you'll yeah. be able to say, see, I found this video. Well, this, it was posted in March. You know, this <laughs> almost makes me think somebody was like, oh, I'm not getting enough video views. Yeah. Um, I need to send out something so people start scouring and maybe it'll at least. Fear works. Yeah, fear is a, an appropriate. Oh my goodness, the full picture is even. Creepier. Yeah, the, the full like picture is super creepy or something. Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now we're all gonna have nightmares. <laughs> Why would you even? Put well, that that's, on your that's part of the Snopes article. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's disappointing. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I think the the key is if you do come across anything like that. Definitely report it on YouTube, flag it, and, uh, you know, they're pretty good about taking those things down uh, once once they're made known to them, but um, chances are you will not see it because, uh, you it's know, Don real. says that six-year-old <laughs> is lying, and, uh, and, and it's a big hoax, so there you go. Good times. All right. Yeah. Well, let's get to our interview. I don't have a segue for this again. There, there's just repeated times because we always come from a Speaking ridiculous of article. Sculptures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe that was an image of our, our next guest. <laughs> is that right? No. Is that no, not no, it? No. no. We uh, we've got Fred Knipe, uh, who's the founder and CEO of CyberGRX, and uh, we're gonna be talking about risk assessment and uh, and making that process a lot easier and. I didn't realize how big of a problem this was for us, but we'll find out and you'll hear more about that coming up right after this on TechNado. All right, welcome back to TechNado, and it's time to bring in our guests now, all the way from Denver, Colorado this time. We have Fred Knipe, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Founder at CyberGRX. Fred, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So uh, for those of us that uh, don't know too much about CyberGRX, I know you guys are relatively new uh, company. Why don't you give us a little bit of background, uh, who you guys are, what you do, and, and uh, why you got into it? Sure. So uh, CyberGRX is a third-party cyber risk management platform. And what that means is we really help companies think about the risk exposure that exists outside of their kind of environment when they send their confidential information to someone else for data processing uh, or a variety of other things. And um, how do they know it's being adequately protected? And what CyberGRX is, is effectively, it's the one and only exchange of that information. So instead of actually just helping someone do an assessment, we actually do an assessment ourselves. We house that data centrally, and we allow it to be used multiple times, kind of a one-to-many solution for a problem that's gotten way out of hand right now. Today, just to put things in perspective, uh, company ADP, the payroll processing company, they were assessed over 4,000 times last year. So it's a complete waste of time, effectively, as people are constantly doing these assessments. Typical Fortune 500 company has between five and 10,000 third parties that are looking to assess in some way. We're helping to standardize that approach to drive efficiencies in that process. So what led you to um, to start this company? Because, you know, usually that that's probably a good story of either uh, you saw other people fail at this or saw an opening yeah. or your last place didn't do this well. So, uh, you know, what, what led you down this path? It, it's interesting. It's a combination of both of those things, actually. Um, but um, I wish I could take credit for the idea. The uh, The original idea actually came from a gentleman named Jay Leak, who was the uh, chief information security officer at Blackstone at the time. Um, I was running security at a firm called Bridgewater Associates, which is a large investment firm on the East Coast. And um, I actually saw this problem firsthand. We were going through assessments of our third parties. And one of the things that we did is we would do an assessment when we brought them on, but we wouldn't follow up that we wouldn't say. So some of them were seven, eight years old, and we had no idea what had actually changed or stayed on top of that. Uh, when I left Bridgewater, I spoke to Jay, and he was thinking about this same this concept that became CyberGRX. And what his responsibility was at Blackstone is quite interesting. He was um, responsible for securing Blackstone, but then also for helping build the security programs at their portfolio companies. And so he was holding kind of monthly calls to talk through major issues, et cetera. And it kept coming up that 
companies could not scale their third-party program to manage the kind of growing ecosystem of providers that their businesses were demanding. They're outsourcing this now. They're using this new AI tool. They're using this, you know, 27 new law firms or whatever it is. And the security team wasn't built or staffed to be able to do the assessments at an appropriate time frame and process that information. Jay's idea was, okay, there have to be a lot of common vendors across the Blackstone ecosystem. Why don't I do a single assessment at Blackstone and then share that with the whole group? And um, he did a quick poll, and I mentioned ADP earlier, of about 100 companies he polled. Uh, 80 of them were using ADP, and 50 of them were sending a team to ADP on site to do a validation, validated assessment every year. At I won't go through the whole cost, but at meaningful cost. And um, basically said, this is ridiculous. Why don't I do that assessment here? That, that alone saves, you know, pays for this whole program. And uh, Jay and I started talking and said, well, other people use ADP, so why, why stop at the Black Zone? Why not go uh, broader? And go from there. Um, to your second point, you mentioned there in terms of uh, kind of failed or, or not been as successful in that process. You know, we're not the first to think about okay, there's a way to standardize and drive this. You have standards out there like SOC 2 or ISO, NIST, etc. Um, there are other products out there that have created kind of a, a standard assessment framework. And we spent a lot of time investigating why hadn't they taken off? What are the issues that people had with each of these different standards or processes? And uh, there were a variety. It wasn't one kind of silver bullet type of situation, but a variety of things that consumers weren't looking for just a certification. Yes, no, they're good, bad. They want to go into the detail and, and granularity. So just a stamp certification, it wasn't good enough. Um, the, lot, the other issue that was actually really interesting is the vast majority of these programs really didn't pay attention to the experience of the third party and they overburdened them with a lot of the pain and cost of doing this. And so, you know, your Blackstone, you call up a random small company and say, I want your SOC too. They have to spend, you know, $60,000, $70,000 to get that done. And they say, great, now I want you to fill out the rest of my questionnaire as well because your SOC 2 doesn't cover all of it. And suddenly that company has now gone through the cost of that process and it's a painful experience for them. And so, you know, I can go through more details on that, but really investigated a lot of this granularity to say, wait a minute, what, how does this need to look? And that was the foundation for how we decided to build CyberGRX. So, you know, it, it sounds really interesting. I'm kind of curious. Uh, it sounds like a, a win-win that for the, the customer, they just go to one place, you've already done the assessment. For the service provider, they're getting assessed less, like ADP in your example, instead of having yeah. 50 people coming in to do physical audits, there's just one. So who... Who gets billed in this case? Like, who's the the biggest beneficiary? Is it the the yeah. customer that's, that's looking for a service provider, or is it the service provider? Yeah, and that was one of the things that got me excited about this opportunity. And so I, you know, spent a lot of time in the consulting world, investment world, uh, prior to this. And it's very rare that you identify opportunities where both sides of the equation truly benefit. And that is in this situation. It's interesting, you know, for the third for the uh, the, sorry, the consumer of the data. And this is an ability for them to scale and actually really manage risk in this area for the first time. And what I mean by that is if you have a program that was designed to assess 30 companies with one person who did that every year, um, then that went 300 or 3,000, they're completely overwhelmed. I can't tell you how many times we speak with CISOs or others who are saying, I just can't keep up with this demand. We have a backlog of 800 or 1,000 or 10,000 third parties that we've never assessed. And... Um, so you're allowing them to scale uh, that up. And I'll go into more details of the platform, but it also allows you to start running analytics and portfolio uh, review of that. So you can start to identify where pockets of risk exist. Huge benefit there. Um, and then on the other side, to your point, you know, these companies who are being assessed countless times, ADP is one example, but then take a medium-sized business where the CTO or head of security is spending X amount of their time just responding to customer questionnaires. 
And it's a it's a huge drain as people are trying to build these programs. To answer your question directly, what we do is we actually bill for the consumption of the data. So it is actually no cost for the third parties to provide the data through our assessment. There's time and energy to go obviously go through the process, but there is no cost to them. And then they can share and then each consumer of that data then pays us a subscription fee. So uh, when they subscribe, it, kind of talking about the platform here, like if I were to come in and subscribe to CyberGRX, I would ac have access to all of the assessments that you've done and, and that would, I would then be able to use that as I like choose between vendors? No. And so one of the things is um, the, the level of data we're collecting is pretty sensitive. And so no one really wants that just to be openly available to whoever signs up. And so what we actually do is we facilitate the, that sharing through our platform. Take, I mentioned ADP, I mentioned Blackstone. Blackstone comes on the platform and says, I'd like access to the ADP information. They effectively request access through our platform. ADP approves it, and then that data flows into the Blackstone dashboard. So what we sell is actually a level of kind of slots as the subscription. You can have 100 or 1,000 or you know, 5,000 or whatever is appropriate for the size of your program. Sure, and, and I, I assume that's done under like NDA or something to, to keep the data private. We have passed through NDAs effectively so that we um, provide that confidence and safety uh, for the provider of the information uh, to feel comfortable sharing that, not just with Blackstone, but with anyone else who requests through the platform who is one of their customers. So now for, for our viewers that, that have maybe never heard of you guys, right? You are a fairly new company. If we've never heard of you, how did you go about building credibility for your organization to say, because effectively, like instead of doing my own assessment, I'm trusting yep. your assessment. So how did you overcome that hurdle? Yeah, so a variety of ways. Um, going back to that original kind of research to understand what was necessary for the space, we, um, we built CyberGRX with several design partners. Uh, these were, we went out and interviewed a variety of CISOs and other risk managers who are well-known in the industry, who had um, you know, the budget to build strong and kind of industry-leading programs, uh, and were out there recognizing that this problem needed to be solved with a, a collaborative effort of some kind. Um, and these were people like Jim Routh at Aetna or Roland Claudio at ADP, uh, Phil Venables at Goldman and others, who kind of got together with us and walked us through their risk program and said, this is what we do to make a risk-based decision. Uh, and so once again, not necessarily a, um, a, a regulatory goal here, but actually a risk-based decision on um, how would they move forward with this? How would they inform their third parties? Excuse me, how would they inform their business on what to do with this third party? That's how we built the assessment approach. Uh, we spoke to each one of them. We brought them together and said, okay, here's a collaborative approach to do this. And this is how we're going to collect the information. So that gave us the kind of credibility with these large brand name companies as our first customers and helping drive volume on the platform. Um, the other uh, piece of this is we then went out and some of our earliest customers on both sides were kind of industry leaders who people would then follow. So taking that, but then we went out to some large retail companies and some other large healthcare companies and large financial services companies and brought them on the platform because their third parties would respond to them and they actually recognized the need to grow this way. And then we went to people like Salesforce and Workday and Iron Mountain and Tech Mahindra and Cognizant and others, and they came on the platform as our first assessed third parties. And so you have that combination there to kind of seed with the large, well-known brands and then that filtered down to now, you know, our exchange has thousands of smaller companies on there as well. And, and that kind of leads to my, my question. So who, who is the target customer for you guys? I know you mentioned a few different um, customers that you'd worked with. And I mean, it sounds like maybe people that are in healthcare, financial services, people dealing with a lot of data, a lot of sensitive data uh, might be good targets. But, you know, if there's an ideal um, size of customer, uh, who is it that you're going after? Yeah, well, I think it's what's interesting is 
Um, and part of the way we built our assessment is to be effectively universally applicable. And so when we went and built this assessment with our design partners, we then mapped it to a variety of regulatory standards to understand, make sure we're covering. So we looked at PCI, HIPAA, um, NERC, FERC, et cetera, and just said, well, let's cover everything that's out there uh, to make sure we're covering the data collection of those. Not necessarily every single question on NYDFS or whatever it is, but do we actually understand what they're looking to do in this data set we're collecting going to help you answer that conceptually. Um, and so once we built that out, the, um, the benefit to the assessed third party is our assessment can now be shared with a healthcare company or a financial services company or a industrial company. And so that allows us to have a pretty broad breadth of um, sharing. To your question though, the people who really focus on third-party risk historically have been those who are in regulated industries. So obviously financial services, healthcare because of HIPAA information, retail because of PCI, and then as you can see a lot of traction right now in terms of um, critical infrastructure and the utility space and others are starting to pay a lot more attention. And, uh, and so we have customers across all of those sectors. Um, interestingly, though third-party risk, one of the things that's been kind of helping CyberGDX really grow is if you look, you know, you can see data anywhere between 50, 60, up, up to 80% of reported breaches today involve a third party in some way. And so that's making people pay attention. When you have, I, I hate to say it, but Target was really a powerful um, movement here because you not only did you have a small third party that uh, allowed a large organization to be compromised, but you saw executives get fired as a result of it. And that's when, that's when executives start to pay attention. Like, wait a minute, what's my exposure here? And, um, and that's been driving programs. So we have customers literally in every sector that you could imagine, uh, ranging from um, hospitals to education to metals and mining to uh, obviously financial services, healthcare, and others. So it really is kind of across the board. You know, you mentioned Target, and uh, there have been a number of stories that have come out of Target uh, and that the, the breach. Uh, many of them attribute the breach to the, uh, I believe it was air conditioning maintenance or yep. HVAC. Yep. Fazio uh, maintenance or whatever it was called, yes. So are, are you guys going out and performing assessments on, in that case, like the, the HVAC companies and, and contractors? So we, in, so if you think about the, the journey a company should go through in terms of managing their third parties, first thing you have to do is actually know who third parties are. I say that somewhat in jest, but actually well over half of the companies we work, work with, that they actually don't know that. that. That's the first step. And so they have a good sense of it, but they're like, hey, well, I think there are a couple other things that our IT department's using or whatever it is. Um, but once you know that, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's effectively recognizing, here are the ones that I know are critical. I'm sending all my most confidential information to, to kind of a medium down to a lower risk group. The reason I say that is we're not saying, okay, here's the same exact assessment that you would do on AWS that you would go do on DeFazio or Fazio air conditioning. But you do need to recognize, uh, how do I rank them? How do I determine who is the higher risk to me? And interestingly, historically, the default people have gone to is, who do I spend the most money with? That has to be someone who's important, but that could be a cafeteria services provider or who else, you know? And so it really is actually going through an inherent risk ranking process where you say, who do I share confidential information with? Who do I provide network access to? Who do I give credentials to? Who do I allow on site, et cetera? And that would flag companies like the um, this, this uh, HVAC maintenance company who was able to log into their network to run diagnostics on HVAC machines but also because of some of the elements of the structure of uh, Target's network was able to move laterally into some of the other more sensitive areas. All right, let's talk real quick about the customer experience on this. And I'm, I'm trying to think about you know, me personally. Uh, at ITPR TV, we, we get those questionnaires on, on at least a weekly basis. And I'm always, I, I, 
I get two emotions when I get these questionnaires. You know, <laughs> first off, I'm like, oh, God, another questionnaire. Uh, but then on the other side, I'm always really interested to see because everyone is different. I've never received the same questionnaire twice. They always have different questions. They're asking for different information. It, it's super frustrating uh, as a yeah. company to, to complete those things. So if we were to engage with CyberGRX, right, so you would perform an assessment on us, you would gather all this data, uh, and you would put that together into your platform. And then we could steer people to you. So if That's they correct. want to do an assessment to us, they, they would actually go to you. And they, you know, you just provide them the information, and they basically plug that into their own questionnaire, or they just take your data and use that? How, how does that normally work out? Yeah, t typically, the customers coming into our platform are recognizing that what they do today is not getting it done for them. It's a, you know, a manual process in many cases, sending you an Excel file that says, you know, do you have passwords? Do you patch regularly? Whatever it happens to be. And you've written some level of text response or something of that sort. And now they have a stack of those sitting there. And more often than not, they're kind of working through, okay, here's the other 45 I have to get done this week before I can go home. And I'm actually not even going to pay attention. I'm going to quickly look at yours, maybe run it through a quick algorithm to say, how many did you answer? And that's what they're doing. And they're saying, okay, that just doesn't, one, it's not solving any level of risk management. And two, it's a massive administrative burden on, you know, if you go back to one of the biggest problems in cybersecurity today is people, is being able to find people to fill. So if you're going to take a CISSP trained person and say, okay, I want you to spend 80 to 90% of your time emailing people to see if they filled out a questionnaire. Like that is just a terrible use of that time. And so, um, and so what we're basically saying is don't do that anymore. We're going to deal all the data collection for you. Either they're already on our exchange and all you're doing is requesting access, or if they're not, we CyberGRX will go out, reach out to them, get them onto the platform, and that data will then just flow for you. So you're, you're, you can now log into our platform and look at all of the assessments for the, the companies that you might work with, either individually or in a portfolio basis. One of the things, and this came from working with our, our design partners, was they looking for that comparability that we moved from, instead of kind of a text-based response, to a purely structured data assessment. What I mean by that is all of our questions are, you know, do you have this or not? And if so, what do you, um, what do you measure? What do you uh, cover? How, what percentage coverage? How often are you updating? Is it daily, monthly, weekly, upon incident, whatever it happens to be? And allow someone to go through and actually just select what's relevant. And to, to use an example, if I say, uh, do you do background checks? You know, they are our strength measurements as do you check, you know, education, prior employment history, arrest record, et cetera, which check all that apply. Now, our coverage is, you know, do you do just um, executives or all employees or temps as well, et cetera. And then timeliness is how often do you do it just upon hire or every year, et cetera. And that allows you to get a pretty robust data set, but all structured. So now you going back to that customer experience, I can say, let me take my thousand third parties. Let me filter by law firms. Okay, I have 120. Let me filter by law firms who I spent over a million dollars with. Okay, now I have 52. And of those, let me sort them by best to worst on data protection controls or access management controls or whatever else it is that you know would give me more comfort confidence that they're not going to be the next Panama Papers uh, type of situation. So what, what happens, uh, I'm thinking of this one scenario, a couple of months ago, we got one of these questionnaires, it was 26 pages long, it was a record <laughs> for me, it was insane, the amount of information they were asking for. Uh, so I, I have to imagine, on a fairly regular basis, you get a customer who wants, maybe it's just one extra question, one thing that's not sure. in your assessment. So how do you handle that? It's interesting, it, it, it came up a lot early on, and that has diminished, 
part of it is our name has gotten out there a bit more, but also um, I think just as people start to adopt the platform. Interestingly, you're right. A lot of people have pride of ownership of their assessment framework, particularly when you go to some of the largest banks. They've spent decades building this thing out, spent you know tens of millions of dollars to get to the exact perfect question set. Uh, when you dissect some of them, it's kind of remarkable. We actually have come across it to ask about dial-up modems. Um, and so it just gives you a sense of, okay. Um, however, the uh, the answer to that is, it typically is, they'll say, great, what do you do with the data? I'm like, oh, well, we'll just put it into a repository. Like, well, does it really matter what you ask if you're not actually doing anything with the information? Um, and then we'll say, look, use our assessment. And instead of going and asking 100 or 26 pages of questions, instead of asking 100 questions, use our assessment for 97 of them. And now all you have to do is ask three questions. So your team only spends time doing those few three. What we found in those circumstances is probably within a few months, they realize they don't need to ask those three and they've got the information they need. And it's just so much more scalable to move forward with us. So obviously Don has a lot more experience in the risk assessment than I do, because apparently our questionnaires all come to, to him. Uh, <laughs> Many of them I, do, I yes. didn't know about this process really happening here. So I, I'm curious, do you find most of, of the, the companies you work with are coming from uh, maybe another vendor that does this? I mean, are there a lot of others out there doing this, or are they coming from the, we're, we're doing it ourselves and realizing that, that this is an, an administrative nightmare and, and looking to you? Yeah, the vast majority of time we are um, either uh, we're helping an internal team kind of move from kind of old fashioned to a more modern, scalable approach. And so it's it's rare that we're displacing another vendor because not many people do this. Um, there are times when we'll displace kind of consulting firms who would go, I go pay E&Y to do a thousand third party risk assessments at six thousand dollars a piece or whatever it is. Um, and so we'll displace that because they can now basically collect that data themselves. Um, there are other products out there that help people automate and uh, become more efficient running their own process. And what I mean by that is it's, they'll come and say, hey, load here, you can build a custom questionnaire and do this and we'll schedule when it goes out to the third party or when it goes to iPro TV or whatever it is. And then we'll follow up with all these emails. They can log into your portal. And you've, you've now moved it from a kind of paper-based email to a you know, online experience, but it's still a bespoke questionnaire. And so you haven't really solved that underlying problem. You've just perpetuated the you know, kind of, a, I guess, a little bit better version. It's a little bit faster horse kind of thing. Um, and so, no, we're really not in bake-offs or real issues out there uh, very often. Uh, nine times out of 10, it's a team that says, we can't possibly scale uh, with what we have today. I mean, to give you an example, literally this morning, companies said, we have 2,000 third parties. We've assessed about... 600 of them are cyber relevant. Of those, about 300 we know we need to be doing assessments of. We've got one person and she did 27 assessments last year. So I know I have a huge exposure that I've never addressed. And not to mention, we're getting 10 new ones every month from our business. Um, that was an easy layup for us. Kind of right on our platform, we already had half of their companies on our platform. And then it's a very easy process for them just to go right in. That same person can now cover that whole ecosystem. You don't have to hire new people. And you can actually start to run analytics on your portfolio versus just trying to keep up. And you guys are a lot cheaper than a breach, I imagine, too. So uh, <laughs> I like to think <laughs> it's so. An easy yes. sale. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're talking with, with Fred Knipe, who's uh, at CyberGRX. And uh, you guys are going to be at, at RSA, which uh, probably for a lot of people that are listening uh, to this podcast is coming out uh, right as RSA is starting. So um, do you know where, where you guys are on the on the floor? Or? I probably should, but I, <laughs> I, I don't actually know exactly. I, I know uh, we got a little bit bigger booth this year and uh, pretty excited for that. 
Uh, and so would love to see everyone there on the, as they get a chance to come by. And we've got a bunch of new features and such we will be demoing at our, at our booth there. So it's exciting. Yeah, it's about the size of Rhode Island, I think, the, the show floor at the Moscone <laughs> Center. So, yeah, so I don't, I don't even know where ours is. So we're, we're in the middle, kind of when you go between the north and the, the south uh, expo halls. Uh, Sounds like a good spot, actually. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah where it's, the, it's the bottleneck where nobody can get by. Exactly. So. Yeah. So, so you guys I, are going to be doing demos and things you said in, in the booth? Is, yeah, no, we've okay. got a, we've got a whole team there. And, uh, last year RSA, so we were in the, um, the RSA innovation sandbox last year. Yeah. And so that, uh, kind of completely overwhelmed our small booth last year. So we've, uh, we've expanded out to a bit larger this, this year and, uh, uh, pretty excited for, um, the meetings and such that we've already got set up. Is the sandbox, is that the one, the, like the smaller, the startups that over at, uh, the Marriott? Yeah, so there's there's kind of two versions. There's one is a I'm trying to like a kind of an early stage, okay, yeah, kind of showcase. And then what the sandbox is is they have a, a panel that picks basically of the several thousand companies out there. Here are ten, um, you know, notable startups to pay attention to. It's a three minute presentation to an audience of a couple thousand people, uh, and then you're judged at that time. Uh, we unfortunately did not win, but uh, um, it was a great opportunity to get out there, and that obviously gave. Uh, a lot of exposure for us to drive some traffic to our booth. CyberGRX, by the way, is in the South Expo Hall, booth 3424, for those oh, of you keeping track. And uh, remember that. And we are uh, <laughs> in the South Expo Hall, 3110, so we're practically neighbors. I think so, yeah. Yeah, they both have threes and zeros. Yeah, and you guys definitely had to move out of the startup hall, right? Because you've had an insane amount of growth over the last year. You know, I'd asked about credibility earlier, but I think your growth numbers really kind of answer that. Yeah, and that's what's what's neat about our um, our network, really. So if I come back to what we're doing, we're not really providing a service of, here's how you can solve your third-party problem faster. So we're actually trying to understand a, a, an industry problem and building that kind of data set, that exchange, is really starting to take off. One of the cool things about it is um, every company that's in the exchange benefits from every new entrant. What I mean by that is if you are assessed on the CyberGRX exchange, every new customer, every new consumer of data we bring on is another potential um, assessment you won't have to complete that year. And so, you know, we have some companies have shared 50, 60 times. And so that's literally offset the need to respond to 50 assessments. That starts to become really valuable. Um, And so they're pushing, and a lot of them are actually working with us to reach out to their customer base to say, how can we get them onto the platform so that they don't have to respond to them? The other side of it is interesting is um, if you're, you know, if you think about running, uh, looking at your historical portfolio is one thing, but if you're moving forward, and this is one of the things I dealt with at Bridgewater is, Business manager says, okay, I want to go live with product X in the next month. Uh, we need to do a security risk assessment. And I'm like, great, that'll take us, you know, six weeks. And he's no, oh, impossible. You're impeding business, et cetera. And you, it's a battle. And so as fast as you can go, if they happen to already be on the CyberGRX exchange, it's a matter of hours. And you've now got all the data you need to do to be able to give that decision and move forward. Um, and we're literally, we have a couple of customers who've shared with us that they went from trying to set an expectation of almost two months to do a fully validated detailed assessment to turning around in the same day and actually stunning their business partner to say, yep, you're good. And they're like, wow, this is a collaborative finally. And so yeah, the opportunity to change that, if, if your peer companies come onto the CyberGRX exchange, the chances are you'll likely use one of their third parties over time. So we see some of our customers are literally trying to get their peer group to come on as well. So it's, it's driving that kind of viral growth, which has really helped us. 
How long is that onboarding process for a vendor? So if a, if a vendor wants to get listed on, on the exchange, that way their customers can just rapidly get that. Is that a a month, a, a year? How long does it take? for? Because you, you would no, actually have to go and perform an assessment, right? That's correct. But it, and this goes back to that kind of inherent risk tiering. Um, we run basically three threshold or three tiers of assessment and, and you know, aptly named our tier one, tier two, tier three. Our tier <laughs> one is, marketing. is yeah. you know, it's <laughs> marketing wizards over here. Um, but uh, no, our so our tier one is a very comprehensive assessment, which is validated, kind of going through and looking for evidence review. We've partnered with Deloitte to help us do that. So they'll actually run through and say, let me walk through your whole phishing policy. Let me look at a screenshot of your firewall configuration or whatever it happens to be. And, um, and so that is, a, that is probably one of our longest assessments. Those can take 45 days to almost two months in some cases. Um, now, when you move to our tier two or our tier three, it's an abridged version of that assessment. It's a much lower cost uh, product. And our tier three is a self attestation. So it's not validated. And those can turn around typically within two weeks. And we've had them done as quickly as two days before. Wow. And so it's a matter of what you need. Our tier two, interestingly, is our most popular product. And the reason is what we've done is we've kind of created a hybrid in there of effectively an automated validation. And what I mean by that is when someone fills out our questionnaire, we will run algorithms that then look to say, are there inconsistencies in the way they may have responded? We know control A is dependent upon control B. They said they had A, but they didn't have B. That will flag. We'll look for anomalous responses for the size of company or the industry that they're in. It's a six-person law firm that says it has a level five maturity SOC, like maybe, but that seems a little bit out of the norm. Um, we also have an outside-in capability like BitSight or Security Scorecard that you might be familiar with, where we run that against the company and look for discrepancies. So what you end up generating effectively is a list of here are flags or questions. Um, the, uh, the analogy I could give you is like... Um, if you ever use TurboTax and at the end it has a, here's your likelihood of being audited. It's because you did this, this, this. Same kind of thing. We'll say, here's the assessment or here's the assessment of the company and here are the things that flagged for us. And so you've kind of given that level of validation or, and if there are very few, then that gives higher confidence in the data. If there are a few, that gives you the roadmap of what to follow up with the company. Scalable, automated, much more affordable than sending someone on, on site. And that's how we've seen many companies just really scale out their whole portfolio based on that product. Wow. So, you know, for a vendor, uh, th there's really no reason not to do this, right? It's You said it was free for the vendor. They just go through the process to get listed. And then for customers, they've got a one-stop shop where they can go and get access to the information. So sounds like a great solution. Don will be signing up tomorrow, it sounds I like. probably will. It does, <laughs> <but yeah. laughs> happy, to, happy to get you on board. <laughs> I didn't realize how much you did this. You said how many you get. It's how painful. often do you get these? Uh, one a week. Really? That's yeah. That sounds like fun. Well, it, what's, it, what's interesting, just to that comment, it's um, the our head of sales, is this is the fifth, I think, security startup he's been a part of, said, this is the first time in my career I haven't had to explain the problem. Like, I walk <laughs> in and everyone is, I hate that, from both sides. Yeah. It's interesting and because it, it's it's an administrative burden of of collecting the same data over and over. And you mentioned that they're, they're all different, but they – they're getting to the same stuff. It's just they may ask differently. They may want, you know, scale of one to ten. They may want text. They may want, and it's it's a real time drain from valuable resources. So, uh, where would someone go to find out more information, or where will Don go to sign up? I, I, and I feel bad because I, I I stumped you before on the booth question. So I'm hoping you know the answer. I, to this. I actually do know our URL, so that's helpful. Uh, it's uh, it's obviously it's uh, cybergrx.com. Um, and through there, you can sign up for a free trial or actually sign up as a third party. And uh, our team will contact you or help you um, get on the platform pretty quickly. And we've built a team to help people through the process. So if you've never done a risk assessment before, 
Um, the CyberGX assessment was designed to allow both highly sophisticated programs to go through our process and then those who've literally never done a cyber risk assessment. And kind of we have a lot of tips along the way. Here's why we're asking this. Here's what this is for. Here's you know why breaches happen this way. And we've had a lot of companies have said that's been pretty educational for them. Um, and so, and then if, if that still doesn't help, we've got a team that's dedicated to helping people get through the process. And so uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty straightforward approach or, or, or Don can be the judge of that as he goes through it for <laughs> iPro TV and come back and comment on a later show about uh, uh, how it went. But um, yeah, no, happy to help out. Yeah, Don will have more vacation time. This would be great. <laughs> yeah, so check him out at cybergrx.com uh, or uh, just hit him uh, up over at RSA somewhere in the South Hall. Uh, <laughs> hey, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, and thank you uh, for watching. But we've got more Technado coming up right after this, so stay tuned. My name is Dana Morrison. I'm the IT director at Grace Christian School in Raleigh, North Carolina. IT directors often hoard so much knowledge that it's hard for their team members to learn. IT Pro TV has given us the ability to level up our technicians to a point where they can decide this is important for me to learn. I would recommend IT Pro TV uh, to any IT team. It's just a great tool uh, for any IT professional. All right, that was really interesting stuff. And, and Don, like I said, I, I didn't realize that's something that we actually face all the time here because it doesn't affect me. Yeah, I'm the privacy officer for the company, so I have to deal with those, and it sucks. <laughs> well, it sounds like we've got a new plan moving forward that we might be checking into there. Uh, hey, before we let you go today on TechNet, I want to let you know about a couple of things coming up. Uh, we actually just had a webinar today on the eight steps to a successful cloud migration featuring the two guys here in this room, but that's going to be up on the archive uh, very soon over at itpro.tv slash webinar, so you can check it out there if you missed it uh, today. I've also got the next one coming up on March 14th. Uh, that's a Thursday. The Undead of IT supporting legacy systems those, those pesky systems that just won't go away and you still have to support them uh, even though the uh, support has run out uh, so Adam Gordon's going to be hosting that one for us on Thursday at March uh, Thursday March 14th at 2 p.m. Eastern time so like I said itpro.tv slash webinars go check that out and sign up and also if you're interested in learning more about itpro.tv well we'd love to have you over at go.itpro.tv slash technado I've got some information about uh, uh, personal memberships as well as business memberships just had a pretty significant price decrease um, to pass those savings along to you. Uh, and we've also got a 30% off code that can help you make that price even better. Uh, so head over to go.itpro.tv slash technado. Get that code. Work for the lifetime of your subscription and uh, you'll be saving for years to come as you continue to learn. Well, thank you, gentlemen, uh, both of you for uh getting right out of that uh, that webinar and teaching <laughs> us about the cloud and now teaching us about Momo and risk assessment and all these uh, all in a day's work. weird things. It has been a whirlwind today. All right. Yep. Well, rest up. I will try. <laughs> and you too at home, rest up. But thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time right here on TechNATO. Are you enjoying TechNado? Then be sure to check out our other podcast, Ask Me Anything, where our subject matter experts answer your questions. Here's the latest episode, and here's the full playlist. And as always, be sure to subscribe to IT Pro TV's channel. IT Pro TV.